3: Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 162 of the coronavirus crisis, New York City reopens for business as stocks surge into positive territory for 2020.
2: Some 16,000 retail shops are now allowed to reopen.
4: New York City, open for business again. Phase one of America's biggest city is underway. Are the subways and buses ready? Is it safe enough to get back into the swing?
0: We're seeing new technology to keep office workers safe.
4: Tonight, what things will look like when you go back to work in the big city. See the new high-tech ways of getting in and getting out. Plus... How one vaccine volunteer is feeling tonight after getting his second dose from a major pharma company.
1: Stocks continuing their
4: climb this morning. And another major day for the great American stock market. This CNBC special report begins now. Here's Scott Wapner.
3: Welcome. It's good to have you with us on this Monday night, the city that never sleeps is finally waking back up. New York beginning its phase one reopening today. Contessa Brewer has details on the restart plan. She is live for us tonight in lower Manhattan. Contessa.
2: And just now hearing the applause for the healthcare workers out here, Scott. This Monday though, felt more like a a lazy Sunday morning kind of wake up. Behind me, there's this whole line of retail stores that were able to open, but did not. Mayor de Blasio had suggested as many as 400,000 people could go back to work today. But let me show you Grand Central Station this evening. Just as rush hour was starting, and there it is. The Transit Authority said ridership for today on its subways and buses was higher than in recent weekdays, but far from its pre-COVID-19 peak. Across the city, 13,000 construction projects were able to resume today, a boost for the workers to get back on the job and for construction suppliers now bringing in hand sanitizers and face masks.
4: I'm just happy to see the people
1: coming back because, you know, you miss one or two paychecks getting trying to get unemployment home. It's tough.
2: but coronavirus has taken its toll. The spot, a black-owned fashion and art boutique in Brooklyn, saw sales slump 90%. They are eager to try to make up some of that lost revenue. The challenge is really hoping that people come back, feel comfortable to come back outside and shop. The city is facing a $9 billion gap in tax revenue, $1 billion of that in sales tax alone. So getting back to business here is not just important to the city, and it is, but to the entire nation, because New York accounts for 5 percent of the nation's overall GDP, Scott. Good
3: Contessa, thank you so much. That's Contessa Brewer for us live tonight down in lower Manhattan. Governor Andrew Cuomo kicking off the phase one reopening today with a subway ride. The MTA resuming regular service as hundreds of thousands are expected to return to work this week. We caught up with one New Yorker who just started riding the subway again for the first time in four months.
5: It was not like anything I've ever experienced in New York City. I did not see a single person in the station. I did not see a single person in the car I was in. Uh, I looked through the window to the other cars and the, at the end of the neighboring car, there was one person sitting there. Uh, no one else. The seats, they would just look like these ceramic plates that we almost eat from, you know, they had like perfect shiny reflections and actually it inspired me to take an Instagram picture and people said like, wow, this is like from a cleaning ad. It felt surreal. There was no reason not to feel unsafe in any way, at least now until more people figure out that uh, they can actually take the subway.
3: Uh, joining us now is Jackie Cohen, campaign director with Strap Hangers, a New York organization that pushes for safer and better subways and buses in New York City. Jackie, welcome tonight. Nice to speak with you.
6: Nice to speak with you, Scott. Thanks for having me.
3: Got to start somewhere. How do you think it went today?
6: So far, so good. I mean, we've heard good reports from riders who had to take the system. You know, the subway hasn't been shut down completely. And I think that's important to remember that the subway was working all throughout this pandemic, especially for essential workers to get to work each day. Um, but today's a big day. And, you know, what we've seen so far is an uptick in ridership. Uh, ridership is still way below what it was Prior to the pandemic, I think overall on subways and buses combined, we saw eight billion or sorry, eight million people um, using subways and buses each day prior to the pandemic. So we saw a 90 percent drop off in those ridership numbers throughout, I think, by April. Um, But, you know, we're starting to make our way back. And it's it's great to see
3: how long until you get back to some semblance of what feels like normal.
6: Oh, what feels like normal. I think that's hard to say. And I don't know that we ever really go back to. To normal, right? For, I think normal for many New Yorkers, for most New Yorkers, especially during rush hour uh, commuting time, felt like being wedged into a subway car like a sardine. So I don't know that going back to that is is the right way to go, right? Um, I think that there will be a return to transit, but I think what we're going to need to see is you know more frequent service to be able to reduce that kind of overcrowding in the years to come.
3: You know, the head of the MTA has been on this network suggesting that. The New York City transit system is still the safest way to get to work. You think New Yorkers believe that?
6: Do I? I I think so. And, I, I, you know, you have to you have to ask people, you know, you put 10 New Yorkers in a room, you got eight million answers. Um, But I I think that that's true. You know, I think it's safer than traveling in a car. You're um, you know, as long as you're socially distant. But I think that is the challenge. Right. How do we make sure that New Yorkers, while they're riding transit on subways and buses, can maintain that social distance, um, you know, to be able to travel safely?
3: Good start, but a long way to go. Jackie, we appreciate your time tonight. That's Jackie Cohen joining us tonight. New York reopening, but a lot has changed. Social distancing, new safety rules, and temperature checks, similar to what CNBC's Eunice Yoon saw in Beijing back in March.
2: Getting to your desk at this Chinese baby products e-commerce firm is not like it used to be. I registered my name, got my temperature checked, and now I'm disinfecting myself before I'm allowed into this office.
3: We asked then, could that happen here? The answer? Clearly, yes. Diana Olick reports tonight on what's happening in Hudson Yards on New York's west side.
0: As business reopens across New York City, it will not be business as usual at 30 Hudson Yards, nor throughout the 2.6 million square foot tower or any of the other office buildings in the brand new complex, according to its developer, Related.
7: We've come up with um, state-of-the-art protocols that will allow our tenants to feel safe and comfortable as they return back to the office.
0: And when they come back to Hudson Yards, they'll be greeted first by thermal temperature scanning equipment, 32 systems throughout the complex. If your temperature is over 100.4, you are retested with a hand scanner. And if it's still that high, you have to go home.
7: On the temperature check, um, it's all anonymous. We're not keeping track of any of this.
0: Once you're clear, you swipe your hand for touchless security through the turnstiles, and that swipe then tells the elevator where you're going, so you don't need to touch the buttons. Elevators will be limited to four riders with positioning dots on the floor for distancing. Hudson Yards already had state-of-the-art air filter systems, but they will pump up the circulation. And Blau said they may actually see more demand from current tenants for more space.
7: Some tenants that have built very dense spaces, uh, whether it's trading floors or bench seating, have decided that you know ultimately they want to have more separation.
0: While the work from home way of life may now be permanent for some, Blau said he expects to see more workers coming back with each new phase of reopening.
7: The days of uh, eight to eight zoom calls, um, it's really not that productive. Um, and I think I think great creativity and innovation happens when people are together. Um, and so I do think people ultimately come to come back to the office.
0: Now, office vacancies are expected to peak at the end of this year and then fall back to pre-pandemic levels by 2022, according to a forecast from CBRE. Now, rents will likely do the same. Most office workers are expected to go back at some point for some amount of time each week, albeit in a far different and distanced way. Scott?
3: Diana seems pretty advanced, obviously. I can't imagine that the rest of Manhattan and Old City, obviously, is going to have the same technological advancements that Hudson Yards does.
0: No, I mean, Hudson Yards is brand new. And in fact, they had some of that ID technology in place even before the pandemic. You could walk in with the hand scanners. So for the rest of New York, it's going to depend on retrofitting those older buildings, how much of an investment the landlords and the developers want to put into those buildings. But it's going to be a lot harder for them to do that than it is for brand new Hudson Yards.
8: It's going
3: to be interesting to see how that all unfolds. Diana, thank you, Diana. Look for us in Washington tonight. Let's bring in CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb now, the former commissioner of the FDA. Dr. Gottlieb, it's nice to see you again. And, all right, so this is the big test, right? New York City is reopening. What are you going to be looking out for most?
9: Well, you're looking at hospitalizations and seeing if they go up. New York's in very good shape right now. If you look at the states um, where the reproduction rate's below one, the four states where the reproduction rate, meaning the number of new cases for every confirmed case, um, is the lowest, is right now Hawaii, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey. So New York's been able to drive it right down there um, to a very low number. Right now, they have about less than 100 hospitalizations a day in the city. To give you a basis of a comparison, the state of Arizona has probably more hospitalizations right now per day than that. Um, one, one hospital system in Houston, Texas Medical Center, is averaging about 90 hospitalizations a day. So New York's driven it down to low levels. We'll need to watch that very closely and make sure it stays there. New op-ed of yours, Wall Street Journal on how businesses
3: can keep their employees safe? The most important few things that companies need to seriously think about as we talk about the reopening of cities like New York?
9: Well, I think continuing to, to take good measures to try to de-densify workspaces, make sure there's proper social distancing. If people can social distance on a work site, make sure they have good protective equipment. The better the quality of the mask, the more protective it is. Studies have now shown that if you wear a high quality mask, you're going to get better protection from it. So if a business can supply that to their workers, that's going to help. Um, and then make sure you have good, good symptom questionnaires uh, that you run on a daily basis. You're doing fever checks. You're going to catch a certain percentage of people that way. Probably less than half, half, half of the workforce that's infected, you'll catch with a good questionnaire and fever checks. But it's something. And then make sure testing is accessible. And that was the point of the op-ed. You need to make sure testing is at least accessible at the workplace so when people don't pass a health questionnaire, you can refer them very quickly to a test facility so they can get properly tested. The World Health Organization
3: said today that it's very rare. Those were the words they used on
9: asymptomatic spread. Is that true? Do you agree? I think it's too early to conclude that. So the World Health Organization is basing this on basically looking at people who are infected and in tra- tracing all their contacts. And then when they did that, when they went back and traced them, they found some people who were asymptomatic and then when they traced those individuals, they found that most of them hadn't passed on the virus. I think it's way too early to conclude that from contact tracing alone. We know that people who are asymptomatic or presymptomatic, when we do nasopharyngeal swabs on those people, they're shedding in many cases as much virus as someone who's infected and symptomatic. So you could surmise from that that they're going to be contagious it might be the case that they're less contagious but it's way too early to conclude that we don't have definitive data on this question right now so we need to assume that asymptomatic individuals can pass on the virus because when we swab them we know they have virus on them and we know that they can exude it
3: obviously become a bit of a political hot potato but do you think tonight uh, should americans have confidence in the world health organization tonight
9: Well, I don't know why the World Health Organization would go out with that conclusion in the absence of a real definitive study. I'm sure they've seen a lot of data from the different contact tracing that's been done by different nations, and they don't see a lot of propagation of the virus when they find asymptomatic individuals. But that's very different from going in and studying the asymptomatic cases and seeing what the natural history is of of their contacts. And so I don't I don't think it's you can conclude that from contact tracing alone. And we haven't seen any of that data made public yet. And so I think we need to be skeptical and cautious here until we have more definitive information. There's a lot of things we don't know about this virus, and it does seem to be transmissible by pre-symptomatic and mildly and asymptomatic individuals. We
3: know that cases are still going up nationally. 20,000 a day is the number of confirmed cases that we've used. You suggested that it's, it's much higher than that, uh, most likely. What does that say about where we are? And is there, an, let's, let's say, quote, unquote, an acceptable level of cases that would make you feel better maybe not zero maybe that's not realistic but instead of twenty thousand had we started earlier in this whole process what should an acceptable number be tonight
9: well look we've seen countries that have largely extinguished the virus if you look at what south korea new zealand japan's been able to do singapore germany um Italy looks like they've extinguished it based on the data that they've made public. So it's possible to get the rates down much lower. I don't think we're going to be able to do it. I mean, New York, New Jersey and Connecticut demonstrate that when you put in place very strict measures, you can drive the rate of transmission to a very low level. I think the fact that we have persistent virus now in a season when this really shouldn't be spreading as efficiently is probably a harbinger for the future that we're going to have persistent spread really until we get to a vaccine. And the question is, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with a second wave when the virus does start to repopulate in the fall because it's probably going to grow in proportion as we enter the fall season? We've gotten a lot better at treating patients with COVID. We know how to keep people alive with measures that we're taking in the hospital. We're not intubating as aggressively. We're anticoagulating patients, thinning their blood because this is a vascular disease. But we do face a difficult future because we have not driven down the levels of infection and it's only going to grow from where it ends up in August. So if we take 20,000 infections into August, September, October, we're likely to see that rise. Do you think there's still too much complacency, not only in Washington, perhaps, uh, but also around the country by virtue of the stories you're hearing and the pictures we're seeing? I think there's exhaustion. I mean, it, it, the, the fact was we were only going to be able to keep the country locked down for a couple of months and we weren't going to be able to continue that much longer. We had to reopen when we, opened, we reopened. The economic hardship was too much. People were becoming exhausted by the measures. And I think it's going to be very hard to lock down again and go back to these strict measures. Maybe we'll do it um, on an isolated basis by by states or by localities if there are large epidemics in the fall. But it's going to be very hard to do a coordinated shutdown of the country. So I think we're going to end up tolerating a higher level of infection heading into the fall and hope that the combination of new therapeutics we get online, more aggressive testing and better medical care for people who do get sick is enough to bridge us to a vaccine, because I just don't see the country being willing, especially ahead of an election, to go through what we've just gone through. I think we're going to end up socially and culturally tolerating a higher level of infection, unfortunately. You mentioned all that we still don't know. You said that, you know, a few moments ago. Interesting study out
3: today suggesting that people with type A blood may suffer a worse outcome
9: in all of this. What do you know about that? We don't really understand why. I mean, this, th- th- there's things about this virus that leads us to believe that it's causing platelets to become sticky. It's causing blood to clot, and it's affecting small vasculature. And so people are saying more and more, this is, this is a vascular disease in some respects. A lot of the sequelae, a lot of the symptoms and the outcomes are driven by impacts on the vascular system. So we really don't understand how it's impacting blood, but it does seem to have an impact on platelets, for example. And doctors are now using full-dose anticoagulation on patients. They're starting to use antiplatelet therapies. And so we're changing how we treat patients and improving outcomes. And so there's a lot that we've learned. So presumably, if we do have another wave of of COVID in the fall and we don't overwhelm the healthcare system with it, we're going to do a better job preserving life. We've already done a good job preserving life in this country, but hopefully we'll do a better job preserving life.
3: We haven't heard much in in the last days, if, if not week or so, about that mysterious illness, Dr. Gottlieb, that was impacting children in this country. What do we make of that? Has the worst passed, do you think, as it relates to that? How should we think about that as parents tonight?
9: It appears to have been associated with coronavirus, and it appears to have come about at a specific time period relative to when the epidemic really struck these cities. And so so it could be the case that children got infected and then within a certain time frame developed these post-viral syndromes. And that has now passed because that time period has elapsed. This could have been something that developed you know, three, four weeks after you became infected. And now we're really eight weeks out from the peak of the infection. So we're less likely to see new cases. It is curious, you're right, that there hasn't been a lot of reporting on new cases. And so it seems to be something that's sequential, probably time to when the infections came on. Do you, and lastly, before we get to some tweets, I, I wanted to ask you about this concept of, of super spreaders,
3: right? there, There seems to be this thought that You know, 20 percent of all those infected are responsible for, say, 80 percent of all of the transmissions out there. And it's it seems timely as we're talking about cities like New York opening as many as 400000 people going back to work. The the issue itself of these so-called super spreaders. Are you still worried about that impact and that effect tonight?
9: It seems to be fairly consistent when you look at the, the different studies that have been done about spread. It does seem to be the case that a smaller number of people account for a lot of the spread. And that's not that, that particular to COVID. You see that with other viruses as well. And what's unclear is it, is it the characteristics of, of how a person's interacting that's causing them to spread the virus more? Or is there something about the way different people shed the virus that causes some people to be more contagious than others? We don't fully understand that. It's probably some combination of both. But it is the case that a smaller number of people are responsible for a larger number of the infections. But there's nothing that we can do to identify those people in advance. And this is... This isn't just particular to COVID. We see this with other viruses as well. Okay. Let's uh,
3: do some tweets if we could. You did reference Arizona earlier, but we want to drill down on that a little bit further. We have one person who wants to ask you Arizona's governor has said new case numbers are increasing only because they are testing more. However, ICUs in Phoenix are basically full. What is the outlook
9: for Phoenix and Arizona uh, for one or two months from now? Well, they've done some blitzes on testing, so they have been testing more. But right now, there's 1,200 patients hospitalized in Arizona. They're hospitalizing about 75 patients a day. And fully 20 percent of all the general hospital beds are occupied right now by COVID patients and 30 percent of the ICU beds. So Arizona's hot. I mean, Arizona has an outbreak underway and an expanding epidemic in that state. And they need to get under control.
3: Interesting. Next question. Would a second and larger wave impact a younger demographic or would it still hit the older and already vulnerable and susceptible demographic?
9: Well, it would want to hit the vulnerable and the more, and the more frail. Um, but presumably, we're going to be in a better position to protect those individuals. And people are going to be more aware if there is a second wave in the fall. And so hopefully we'll preserve life um, more effectively. We haven't done good seroprevalence studies. It's probably the case that more younger people have had this already as well. And so more younger people are going to be protected.
3: Last question. We're advised to take the flu vaccine every year. Will we have to take this vaccine for covid every year as well?
9: Likely, that's going to be the case. Um, The the vaccines are in development are probably going to provide partial protection for a period of time, and you're going to need to take it probably seasonally. So you would get this alongside the flu vaccine.
3: Appreciate your time very much. Covered a lot there. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks very much. We'll talk to you tomorrow night. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb with us tonight. Here's what else is coming up on this CNBC special report.
4: Tonight, what a man who volunteered to get one major pharma company's COVID-19 vaccine is feeling tonight. Pain and promise. Next. Plus, when your kids ask, can I go swimming this summer, what will you say? See what one CEO of the water is doing to get us all in the pool coming up. First, the USA on June 8th, 2020.
3: Welcome back on a day when the S&P 500 went positive on the year and the Nasdaq hit a new closing high. Here is where futures stand on this early evening. Many hours before the trade, it's mixed, modest, plus or minus. Today, investors continued their focus on the economy reopening, the Dow rising 461 points. The S&P now positive for the year, Nasdaq at an all-time high. Stocks many investors wouldn't have touched with a 10-foot pole a month ago, maybe even a week ago have had an amazing run. Let's bring in Mike Santoli. Mike, it truly is remarkable. If you look at the performance of some of these so-called reopening stocks, we can put some on the screen. I'll read them out. I mean, Boeing in the span of a week, Mike, is up better than 50%. Here's some one-month gains for you. American Airlines is a double over the last month. United and Norwegian Cruise Lines, these so-called epicenter stocks, have just surged. What do you make of that?
1: Well, first of all, people wouldn't touch them with a 10 foot pole. So the starting point is people had fully abandoned these names even after those huge runs that you mentioned for these stocks. They're still down 40, 50, 55% from their highs. So it just shows you that, you know, at the lows in March, these were companies that were priced for a high likelihood of indefinite shutdown of their business. And they did come back once we had some glimpse that there was momentum toward a reopening, and then it seems to have become a little bit self-fulfilling. Every day that goes by where there's no impediment to this idea that the country is reopening and they're going to just go for it this summer, uh, then speculators and other traders come in and bid them higher. There's definitely also an effect here where investors have felt they didn't own enough exposure to an economic recovery. Uh, You know, they were hiding in the big tech stocks. So that big violent move into these beaten down cyclical stocks that are still way off their highs, I think has, a, has an energy of its own, not to say it continues, you know, for too much longer from here. Who knows?
3: No, but momentum is clearly on the side of the surging bulls. And that is the question everybody wants to know. You watch this as closely as anybody. Can this continue and what's going to determine yeah. whether it can?
1: It could probably continue for a while. What's going on right now is in the short term, the market is getting a little bit stretched. Traders are getting a little bit overconfident. That often means the market has to flatten out and pull back a little while. But there's still a massive gulf between what value stocks have done over the last few years and growth stocks. And that gap can continue to close, whether it's by growth stocks coming down a little more or those cyclicals continuing to work for at least a little while longer, uh, at least you know, based on on the path we've taken so far.
3: A lot of talk about that market breadth. If you will, a lot of stocks now joining this party, yes. and it has been absolutely that since the March 23rd lows. Mike Santoli, our thanks to you.
1: it 's been impressive. we 'll
3: right, we'll catch you tomorrow all day on CNBC, of course, on day 162 of this crisis, here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. A new study shows stay at home orders and business closures prevented nearly five million coronavirus cases in the United States. Dunkin' Brands plans to hire 25 thousand workers as the restaurant industry tries to start recovering from the pandemic. California releasing guidelines to reopen schools that include both in-person and distance learning. Pfizer announced the start of its phase one vaccine trial May 5th. Andrew Rubin is one of 360 volunteers and just had his second injection last week. Andrew, it's good to see you tonight. Welcome. Good to be here. You're a a brave person, uh, obviously, and many people are grateful for what you are doing for obvious reasons. Tell me how this has gone for you.
5: Well, it's been quite a journey. I just had my my second shot, they were three weeks apart, and after a series of blood tests to make sure I was a good candidate, I had my first shot, and within eight hours, uh, developed symptoms. I was kind of excited that I developed symptoms because when you go into this study, you're not sure if you're gonna get the real thing or a placebo. So while I was lying in bed that first night uh, with a with a fever, I was actually thinking to myself, boy, I'm glad I got this because this is what I signed up to do. Uh, the second shot yesterday, which was again, three weeks later, again, the series of blood tests, uh, I actually had a bit of a tougher reaction to. It, it took me, instead of 24 hours to recover, it took about 48 hours to recover. The fever was a little bit higher, uh, a little more fatigue. But uh, something strange with this, with this process, this, this immune response that I, I seem to have, is that when it ends, it ends very abruptly and quickly, and you return to feeling great, almost like with the flick of a switch. So while it can be a little scary to people to hear a vaccine and am I going to get sick, what I, I can tell people if this thing works, uh, they'll be able to get through it. They'll be able to tolerate it.
3: I'm having a hard time getting past the glad I got this line.
5: Um, you weren't scared at all? <laughs> I, I, was a, I was a little bit scared. I'm a hospital administrator, and a lot of my friends and family kept sending me texts and email uh, thanking me for being a healthcare hero. And, and candidly, I felt a little bit like a fraud because it's really the, the nurses, the hospital, the frontline workers who were putting their lives on the line to take care of these people in our hospital and all the hospitals around the country. Uh, So when I read about this study in Pfizer, then learned that NYU Grossman School of Medicine, the organization I work at NYU Langone Health was one of the trial sponsors. I was able to research how to get in and apply and I applied. So it it was my way of giving back and I kind of put the anxiety aside And it's not you really don't think about it until you read that consent form and they tell you about everything that can go wrong along the way where you start to second guess yourself. Uh, But uh, you sort of get through it and and, you know, you're doing something that's that's for the good. I had to calm my mother down, of course, a little bit. But I I did that. And uh, I'm I'm really glad I did this. Yeah. Mom's always worried, of course. Uh, How high was the fever that you got? It went up to almost 102. Uh, the, the symptoms were, they were flu like. You know, a lot of people ask me, are you injected with the virus, the COVID virus? And the answer is no. Uh, commonly, a, a vaccine can be and typically is an attenuated virus, a virus that's uh, uh, weakened. And uh, your body naturally develops the resistance to that virus. That's how you overcome uh, an actual infection. This is not, in, you're not injected with COVID, you're injected with what's called messenger RNA. And it's, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but from what I read and understand, it's basically teaching your body how to build an immune response to the actual virus should it it enter your blood. And uh, I don't know yet that it worked. I don't know yet that I have antibodies. I don't know when I will know. Uh, This is a phase one portion, the phase one portion of the trial, which is about safety. Uh, And uh, they're measuring that, how well I and the rest of my cohort tolerate the vaccine. Uh, and then I can tell you they are moving rapidly into phase two, which will rapidly go into phase three. And I'm, I'm certainly hopeful and, and I'm living proof that you can get through it. And it's uh, it's really not that bad.
3: If, if this turns out to be the one or at least one of the vaccines that will be used to treat people uh, and prevent covid. I know you've thought about this question. Obviously, you wouldn't have done this in the first place. How
5: will that make you feel? It will make me feel great. This is one of five that's in the in the national strategy. My fingers are crossed and I'll certainly keep you guys informed.
3: I hope you will. Uh, We'll be thinking about you. Grateful again uh, for all that you're doing. Andrew, thank you. That's Andrew Rubin uh, joining us tonight, one of the vaccine volunteers. Here's what's next on this CNBC
4: special report. New York City reopening. Straight ahead, the owner of several coffee shops with an ace up his sleeve on how his day went.
10: They didn't think that these things would happen to someone like me.
4: And a Goldman Sachs executive story that'll stop you in your tracks. We're back in two minutes.
0: For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up.
2: New Yorkers are expected to return to work today.
4: Phase one is underway as New York reopens. Two police officers approach me. And one Goldman Sachs executive on what it's like to be in his shoes. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. We welcome you back. A
3: remarkable interview today on CNBC's Closing Bell with a managing director of Goldman Sachs. Here's Frederick Baba talking about an experience he had not long ago while walking in Chicago.
10: I was walking to the subway in the north side of Chicago. Obviously Chicago is a fairly segregated city and two police officers approached me and said that they had had reports of a black male in shorts and a t-shirt stealing from some of the residences in the area. And obviously because there were not very many black people in the city and I was black and people's perceptions They assumed that I was that person, and then I tried to explain to them that that was ridiculous and that their description was extremely vague and that I was being profiled and that there were all of these reasons why this person would not be me. And I tried to talk about where I went to school and where I worked, and at the end of the day, the thing that started to dawn on me was that the way that they were perceiving me was this is a black person in an area where we don't normally see black people where we have been told that a crime has been committed and not this is a traitor at a firm here in our city that is probably affluent and probably would not have committed this crime. Um, And I think for a lot of black people across corporate America, across this country, you are going to have these experiences where you realize that the way that someone is responding to you is potentially a function of your race. And I think the thing that's really difficult is that sometimes it's going to be very explicit and very racist and you'll be able to say for certain this thing is racist and then other times it is not clear and it is probably racist but it's not necessarily that someone is thinking about it or fully aware of it
3: that was goldman sachs managing director frederick baba well phase one of new york city's reopening underway as you know after nine weeks of being closed Culture Espresso reopened its third location today. Jody Lacascio is the owner. He is with us live tonight. Closed for such a long time, reopening one of the locations today. How did it feel?
11: Um, it's, uh, it's great to be open again. It's up uh, to a slow start, but real happy to be back in business and uh, very well received. So it's been positive so far.
3: Put me in the, in the shop. How did it look? How did it feel? Uh, how many customers did you have on day one?
11: I, the shop's cleared out we don't we're right now doing curbside so we're just having people just kind of come to the door we have a counter set up with a register and um no one's coming in we're just doing everything over the counter through the door um we're kind of easing into it we want to make sure staff's comfortable and their customers are comfortable um we're at you know about 10 percent so with 70 80 customers as opposed to Seven or 800 that we were used to um, pre-COVID. But, you know, we're kind of starting from starting over, basically, and um, waiting for people to return. It was real quiet for a while in Midtown. Did did you wonder
3: whether this day was ever going to come? I mean, were were you close to going out of business at any time?
11: We've we've held on. We were never – I mean, I haven't given up hope by any means, so I'm looking forward to a recovery. I think it's just a matter of when. Uh, I have faith Midtown and New York is going to – persist um it's just a matter of trying to figure out how to hang on in the meantime and um work with your landlords and do what you can to kind of stay afloat until uh things get back to some sort of sense of normalcy or some at least sustainable amount of customers how
3: did you get through the last couple of months
11: um well we closed down and we just kind of we just held tight until the midtown was a, was a ghost town. It was pretty empty. Um, I did get the PPP loan, which um, has helped quite a bit, keep thing, keeping things going and um, keeping the wheels turning. But, you know, it's like a life raft, um, but you're still sort of floating in the middle of the ocean. So you haven't been saved yet, you know, but uh, it's definitely been a huge help.
3: Your, uh, your partner in life, your wife, happens to be uh, an ER doctor. And I'm wondering the how dread. that influenced your experience through all of this and also the way that you thought about reopening
11: yeah i mean i I, you know i always ask her um the questions that no one knows the answer to and she admittedly doesn't know you know when this is going to end um how you know when will we be able to get back to some sense of normalcy but she you know we stick by the guidelines and she is adamant about you know wearing a mask and social distancing and how that's been effective, and we're a- applying that to how we run, run the shops. And um, we haven't opened the doors to customers yet, but that's something we're working towards. That'll be the next step. The next step, excuse me. And when do you think that'll happen? Um, we're going to take it week by week. Um, I'd like to think within a week or two, we'll start having customers flow through, keeping the six-foot distance and um you know we want to make sure staff's comfortable and, and customers are comfortable and uh we're just taking it as it comes and we're kind of it's hard to plan too far ahead for anything
3: yeah i, I know the feeling um we'll be thinking about you we wish you the best of luck thank you very much hope things get back thank to normal so for you or at least some semblance of that as soon as possible jody Locasio, we appreciate yeah. your time tonight culture espresso and he's the owner a lot more coming up tonight
4: When your child asks if they can go swimming this summer, what are you going to say? Next, the owner of one swim school and what he's doing to make mom and dad say yes. And
12: all of us dancers are currently on unemployment.
4: Artists reversing the heartbreak. First, what our world looks like on day 162 of the coronavirus crisis.
3: COVID-19 shuttered theaters and performance spaces across the country, putting hundreds of thousands of actors and dancers out of work indefinitely. Eugenia Zinoviva is a principal dancer at the Festival Ballet Providence in Rhode Island. Tonight, the heartbreak of having her work and her passion halted in her own words.
12: When you're in your mid-20s, You're still hoping to have a lot left. Kind of sucks to just be sitting and waiting at this time that you're supposed to be like in the prime of your career. All of us dancers are currently on unemployment. Some of us are still teaching through Zoom, a lot of us will supplement our income at the ballet company by teaching a few hours a week. I have a little dance studio set up in my living room. Somebody from my company generously gave me like a square of protective flooring and I use my fireplace, I hold on to it as a, a bar. We have released already a lot of digital content. The struggle I think is going to be in monetizing that and finding a way to help use that to kind of supplement what we're already doing in the studios. But we do know that, realistically, it's going to be tough to get people out in the same crowds that they were used to coming out in just last year.
3: That was Eugenia Zinoviva in her own words tonight. New Jersey announcing public pools can reopen on June 22nd. The guidelines do out tomorrow. In Rhode Island, Ripple's Swim School reopened today after a nearly three-month shutdown. Owner John Heelan was on track to have his best year ever when the state shut everything down. He shared his story with us a few months ago. Tonight, we're glad to have him back. John, welcome back. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So h- how's this going to go? T- tell me how this is all going to work. I know there may be some trepidation from people who are thinking about the risks of getting into a swimming pool and being close to people.
8: Sure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we opened today... Um, uh, Taking a pretty limited calendar for the month of June just for that reason. We want to kind of ease back into it. Um, so, the structure we set up is just private lessons, um, capped it at uh, just three lessons going on in our pools at a time. So, you can see from the video, very spread out, even in the waiting room, everyone's very spread out. <clears throat> a couple other measures safety uh, equipment, you see our instructors wearing full face shields, um, and the normal protocols, right? Everyone in the building has to wear a mask, um, the six foot radius, all that kind of stuff. So. Um, We're 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 doing everything we can. Um, And with the the first day results today, everything was great, completely smooth. Everyone was happy. Um, uh, It was a great day.
3: Well, that's amazing video. I I actually didn't expect to to see that. I'm quite surprised you're actually giving swim lessons. Still, you're just taking the, the precautions that you would see maybe in some other
8: industries. Exactly. Yeah, the CDC came out um, a while back, actually, and said, uh, you know, a pool environment, there's no proof that the virus um, can survive in a properly maintained pool environment. So that the actual medium that they're in is is probably about as safe as you could be. The chlorine uh, um, and, a, you know, a well-managed pool uh, makes it, um, you know, uh, I guess, impossible for that, for the virus to spread. So the, the medium itself is completely safe. Uh, and then everything else we're doing with the masks and all that, as you would, I guess, in any other business. Um, and everyone in the facility wears a mask with the exception of the kids. We don't want kids in the water wearing a mask. That kind of presents its own risks. Do you know how
3: you'll end up doing this year? Do you, do you, do you have an, any idea? I mean, you're, you're usually doing $2 million in revenues normally, which is, which is a pretty good number. Uh, how close can you get back to that, Correct. do you think? We are about to go into the heart of the summer, obviously, which is a good time to be in the
8: pool. Sure. Yeah, it's, um, my point of view is, Almost changed by the week as we've gone through this, right? So when we closed March 13th, we were um, seeing our our best growth, our best numbers. Um, Things were uh, exceptional, really. So March 13th, it kind of hit the windshield, so to speak. Everything stopped. Um, So it was a big question mark on kind of how we'd come out the other side of this. Um, We had a a lot of money saved up and some things in place. So surviving through the downturn was kind of concern number one. Um, Now that there's uh, that we're starting to reopen. What and, and how long is it going to take for things to return back to normal, and what does that business look like? I, I can say just after day one, we announced about two weeks ago we were reopening, and um, just after day one today, the the response is much more than I thought it would be. We did uh, when we announced we were reopening, our regular calendar won't start till July. We didn't really want to force people to have to make a decision about that. So June is just a very limited, um, specialized calendar, pretty small. July is when we'll start to go kind of full throttle again. Um, but we didn't want to push anyone to make the decision now until they were comfortable. So it was really like a crawl, walk, run. But like I said, based on today's response, it was amazing. Um, just the, the people we have coming in, everyone's happy, the amount of new registrations we're having. So it's it's a, a much more um, kind of robust pickup than I was expecting. You, you
3: have a very controlled environment, uh, obviously, in, in your businesses. But how should we think about public pools, do you
8: think? Um, uh, like I said, in terms of the, the pool, it's, is, is plenty safe, um, but I think it's a matter of spacing out just like anywhere else. Distances, face masks, all those kind of things still play. John, appreciate your
3: time. Wish you well. That's John
8: Helan, the Ripples Swim School, joining us tonight. Tonight's top stories
3: in America's restaurants operating through the crisis are next. It is time for our nightly shout out to restaurants operating in the face of this crisis. Tonight we salute the El Dorado Cantina in Las Vegas, Nevada, Project Social, Dana Point, California, Cantina Taco and Tequila Bar, White Plains, New York, Verde in Baltimore, Maryland, and Briac in Bridgeport, Connecticut. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC with the hashtag ThanksForTheGrubs and the name, the town of your favorite restaurant, a picture as well. We'll do our best to get it on TV. This is day 162 of the coronavirus crisis, and here are tonight's headlines. The economy officially entered recession in February. That according to the National Bureau of Economic Research. New York City reopens 100 days after its first reported case of coronavirus. The Dow rose 461 points. The S&P now positive for the year. NASDAQ at a new record high. That's all for us. Shark Tank is next.